1: afternoon. Is the lighting okay? Can everybody see their handouts? Um, Everybody's lunch is digested? Would it be okay if we just jumped right into the Yoga Sutra? So uh, here we are at the end of the second chapter of the Yoga Sutra. The Yoga Sutra was a text uh, compiled probably around um, 200 or 300 B.C. Um, nowadays, we call it the Yoga Sutra attributed to Patanjali. But uh, <coughs> scholars tell us there was no person named Patanjali, that uh, this is just a kind of mythic invention, <coughs> like so many uh, mythic sages. And the, the compilation, this text was kind of um, attributed to this this person. So when you say Patanjali, you should keep in mind there wasn't a Patanjali. Um, And also, maybe that means Patanjali shouldn't always be he, but also could be she. Or maybe, because it's 2016, should just be they. Um, The text is a weaving together of a philosophy that was dying uh, in India at that time called uh, Sankhya philosophy, along with many early teachings of the Buddha. And because it's a sutra, literally a suturing of these different uh, teachings, uh, parts of the text fit together really well, and parts don't fit together that well, which is my favorite part of the text. Is It's, it's kind of, um, I like this about most art forms, where they're sort of together, but they're falling apart a little bit also at the same time. Do you, do you know what I'm talking about? Like, Sometimes you see a piece of art, like a performance piece, for example, where it's kind of on the verge of falling apart. Um, and that's one way you can enter it. And uh, this is my theory also about teachers. There, there are some teachers that are so masterful that when you're around them, you just want to be like them. And there are other teachers that are just completely falling apart. And when you're around them, their life is such a disaster that it makes you feel like you could just completely be yourself. I like to try and stay in the middle (laughs) between these two perspectives. So. So this this teaching is really wonderful for this ability to kind of hold these different teachings all together at the same time and not really conclude. So what's wonderful about the text, and maybe we'll feel this only in the two days we're together, is there are places where it disagrees with itself, which is really quite interesting, Uh, just like we do with our own uh, theories. So um, here we are in the section where uh, the text suggests that the postures, Mm -hmm. plural, of meditation should embody two qualities, a steadiness, stira, steadiness, and sukha, which is actually where you get the word sugar, which means sweet. So the posture should be steady and should be sweet. There's a joke in academia. If you've ever studied Sanskrit, in Sanskrit circles there's a joke, which is, uh, too much sukha causes truth decay. (laughs) If things get too sweet, then um, you lose track of what's important, what's real. So this is really important, because uh, when you're sitting still, in order to uh, move into stillness, There has to be some alertness in the body. And the muscles of your body have to turn on just enough that you can maintain this outer posture. But simultaneously, we're using the control of the posture to let go of control. Right. So we're using this controlled um, uh, physical Uh, sculpture to let go of internal control. So this is the paradox of sitting. So there has to be steadiness, and there also has to be (coughs) a sense of sweetness or a sense of ease. And so even on the outside, if there is certain muscular control to hold the pose up, on the inside, you can start to feel how the, the central axis or the subtle body can get really, really quiet, really, really quiet. And this occurs in line 47 as effort relaxes and samapati arises, revealing that the body and the infinite universe are indivisible. And you might think, whoa, that's really psychedelic. But basically, what's happening here is the Yoga Sutra, which I think of as a textbook, is mapping out some stages here of practice. And the stage here that's mapping out is suggesting when there is alertness balanced with a sense of ease, then you start to lose track of your body as being personal and separate from the universe. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And I think we all know this. And the example I like to give is um, how we experience different sensations in the body that usually when our eyes are closed, we have this language where we say to ourselves, oh, ourselves, oh, there's pain in my back. Has anyone had this? Or discomfort in my foot. Right. But as you start to sit and ease starts Mm -hmm. to emerge, we start to realize that there's pain that arises, but actually there is no foot that the foot isn't really much more than just a category, an image, and language. And in fact, sensations don't even really arise in your body, do they? They arise in awareness. But when your eyes are closed and you're not relying on your outline of body, then you start to see that sensations are just emerging in time and space. It's not actually as personal as you once thought. In fact, your age and your gender and so many other factors actually have nothing to do with that space. That space isn't characterized by masculine or feminine or your height or your health or your weight or your uh, social status. (laughs) None of these things have to do with this space which is really interesting because that that most of us are so defined by our identities or the identities that we've been internalized. So, the body and the infinite universe become indivisible. Indivisible meaning you can't recognize where your body ends and the universe starts. You can't recognize where your inhale I do this with little kids when I'm when I'm teaching kids. I get them to stick their fingers up their nose and try and find where their inhale stops becoming um, air and becomes theirs, like personal. Like, when does your inhale, as it's going up, how far until it's yours? (laughs) And they can't find it. They can't find it. Do Do you want to do this one? <laughs> we'll do it in partners actually
2: <laughs>
1: or triads might even be better okay. then line 48 which is missing for some reason on this uh, photocopy but um, line 48 is really simple it's um, a realization of uh, the dvandvas. Dvandva means a twin A realization of the way that our minds operate in binary thinking. So this is really fascinating. So when you're in meditation and you start getting calm, there's this sense of the body not being as personal. And your thoughts, you're still thinking. And your thoughts are going by. And you start to see that whether you think or not, you can't stop thoughts. And then you start to see, oh, maybe I'm not thinking all these thoughts. Maybe they're just thoughts going by without a thinking source. Or sometimes we say thoughts without a thinker. Thoughts are just moving, just like clouds are moving and sounds are moving, you see. And then according to the text, one starts to recognize how one of the basic functions of the mind is to take that parade and define it in terms of binaries. I like, I don't like. It's like the first function of the ego. I like this, I don't like that. And the text is saying here that one of the first insights that you might find when you're sitting in meditative practice, and I don't know if this is true, is that as you get calm, so the first thing we recognize is how crazy we are, <laughs> is how distracted we are. But the second thing that's being said here is as you start to calm down, you start to see that the, the, the basic function of the mind is liking and disliking, trying to frame what's moving in terms of like or dislike. Or another, maybe it's a different set of binaries like permanent, impermanent. Trying to make things permanent even as they're impermanent, which I think almost all of us know is a great source of suffering for ourselves and those around us. It's like Trying to take what's naturally fluid and fix it and hold on to it and make it the way we want it, more permanent, more comfy, much more comfortable. So these are the first three sentences I want to look at. Um, Are there any questions so far before we keep going? We're going to study a little bit, and then we're going to do some exercises around this. Any questions? Is this relating to your experience a little bit? It's important that there isn't a gap between the teaching and your life, and that whenever there's a gap, you're asking questions. Because uh, if there's an old text that has really great insights, but the insights aren't being embodied in how you live, then the text is kind of useless. Um, it's really important that we keep uh, finding out, oh, is this true in my experience? How is this true in my experience? And what does this have to do with my relational, relational life? And I think what's helpful about this is it sounds so private, but it's actually all relational practice, which we're going to learn about. Yeah. Um,
2: it's kind of, I guess, going quite far into the rabbit hole a little bit. Okay. Say if you start to sit as the awareness of watching all the thoughts coming up and going past, and then not having this aversion or attachment, then I've struggled a little bit with if you go so far down that route, then if you are in your daily life, then when something comes up encouraging you to act, Mm -hmm. it almost turned me into a bit of a, I guess, a cardboard vegan, as you yeah. said yesterday, because then...
1: <clears throat> Please don't quote me on the cardboard vegan <laughs> comment.
2: Um, then I kind of feel like, well, that's a desire, and then that is coming from a place of liking and wanting, whereas if I am this awareness of just experience everything, I get into a stage where I almost became a little bit apathetic, uh-huh. <laughs> practicing this yeah. quite seriously, and then... Mm-hmm. I found it difficult to engage in relationships say if my girlfriend was upset I actually it, it sounds strange but I found it hard to relate to her because I'd gone so far into this of just watching the I guess the psyche and the thoughts yeah and yeah I found it it's it separated sure. a little bit if that makes yeah. sense yeah
1: yeah very very clear so So where did you get the notion that you should be watching your thoughts and your breathing? Where did you get that idea? Um, Because you use two terms, awareness mm -hmm. and watching.
2: I guess, well, originally from meditation practice, and then a book I read recently was the one that specifically was talking about this in a roommate that we all have and if you can externalize this in a roommate yeah. then you would realize this person is seriously neurotic and I don't want to hang out with them anymore uh-huh and so I was <laughs> externalizing my psyche a lot yeah and just being like you're seriously annoying and then just trying to
1: right just okay what so so our practice <coughs> that we're doing is a little bit different than that okay so what we're doing okay. is um, we're feeling breathing at this kinetic (coughs) level do you understand what I mean by that it's tactile we're feeling inhaling and feeling exhaling and I'm giving you a location I'm offering you a location which is just outside the nostrils don't even have to go so far up and you're just feeling your breathing there so there's no watching happening There's no observing happening. There's no awareness happening. This isn't about awareness. This is about feeling breathing. Do you understand the difference? Mm -hmm. You're feeling breathing happening. So what we're collapsing is the observer into the kinetic experience of feeling breathing. Okay, And this is what makes this form of meditation different than what you get in Vedanta or many other styles of practice, where you're encouraged to watch your experience or witness your experience. What I find problematic about that language is that if you're watching and witnessing your experience, you're reinforcing the same problem that all of us have all day, which is we're not really in our experience. We're talking to ourselves about our experience. We're not really there. And we all know what this is like. Like You're having a conversation with somebody, and you're not fully there. There's someone who's you talking to yourself about how well you're doing. You know? Or you're making rules for yourself. Or you're measuring or comparing yourself. And that self-consciousness is the source of, c- of so much of our suffering, the self-constructed suffering anyways. Okay? And it's also what kills creative energy, because you can't move into creative energy when the critic is sitting on your shoulder yapping, you know, good boy, bad boy. I like, I don't like. So let me make it really simple. Our first practice is to allow ourselves to contact what's arising, to contact what's arising. And we're doing it with some help from our breathing. Okay, So don't watch your breathing. Feel your breathing. Feel your breathing. That's why I say get out of image-based um experience come down and get more somatic than that underneath images yeah so then <clears throat> when there's contact there is experience this is meditation 101 when there's contact there's experience okay so the job of the yogi is to allow him or herself contact. And the way that I described this last night is to not separate from your experience. Whatever's happening moment to moment, you're not separating from your experience. And your breath titrates your personality so that you can absorb and process what you're feeling it, 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 um, it <laughs> modifies and creates a safe container so that you can learn how to tolerate the affect or how to soothe yourself during whatever you're feeling as moderated by your BFF aka breathing So your best friend forever is your breathing. And your breathing is going to help you tolerate whatever you're making contact with, reminding you that it's safe, it's processable, it's digestible, and isn't going to overwhelm uh, your psyche or your personality. You see? And, and so it's very, very gentle. And every time we start separating from ourselves, we use the technique of finding the beginning of the breath to come back again to something tactile, so you don't separate from yourself. So you don't separate from your experience. And that's meditative practice, is not separating from your experience. You see? And when you don't separate from your experience, you have wholehearted activity, which is non-duality, which is samadhi. You see? So we're using the technique to stay so close to the experience that we start to develop an internal radar for where we're starting to separate from our experience. Does this make sense a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. And that's the core of yoga work right there. Like, If you want to describe a core of what we're doing in our practice, it's learning how to not separate from ourselves and how to sustain that all the time, not separate from ourselves, so that um, there isn't sp- the, the kind of splitting that happens so much in our day occurring. Because every time you separate from yourself, you then start reinforcing the witness. You see? Reinforcing the observer. Reinforcing this awareness that's watching. Okay? And what we're trying to do here is we're trying to collapse that, actually. We're trying to see that that witnessing leads to the kind of separation, actually, that needs healing.
0: So if it's a thought that arises, if it's with a thought that you want to make contact with, do you bring it also into the body level and uh, see where where you're feeling the thought?
1: That's one technique that you could use. Um, Another technique is just notice the thought, Mm -hmm. so you can notice the thought, but still stay connected to the breathing body. And then leave the thought alone. So um, when a thought emerges, we don't get too interested in it. At lunchtime, we were talking about some of the differences between psychology and uh, meditation. And this is a big difference too, which is, in psychology, when certain clusters of thoughts come up, we get really interested in what they mean, and what they're saying, and what they refer to. In meditation practice, we're totally uninterested. Instead, what we're interested in is the fluidity and the impermanence of thinking. So we're, we're, we're trying to notice the impermanence of thinking while staying somatically connected to the present moment through breathing. Yeah. Whereas when you see a psychotherapist, you're looking at patterns and thoughts and content of thoughts and the way narratives are constructed where narratives are helpful or unhelpful. In meditation practice, we don't get into that. We're just uh, feeling breathing and trying to stay like a submarine under the surface so that thoughts don't see us. We're just like in a yellow submarine moving underneath, thinking.
2: The term the term non-duality. <coughs> non-duality. Is, yeah, it's confusing to me. Because mm. it sounds like... What, is, is there a simple way to say that? Because it's like a double negative. Like mm-hmm. You're being so non-arrogant right now.
1: Yeah. Right. Say, I would just say samadhi.
2: Samadhi.
1: Yeah. Or intimacy.
2: Yeah.
1: yeah. That's why last night I said samadhi is... Um, <coughs> or you know, I said intimacy is synonymous with... Um, enlightenment enlightenment. the the, the awakened mind is the mind that's (coughs) intimate is the heart that's intimate is the body that's intimate with this moment or I would say another way of saying it is don't be afraid of moments and I would say as a footnote to that, that if you don't have a practice, a regular practice, then that's just a really good philosophy to live by. But the reason why practice is important is because it takes some training to learn how to stay in the zone of not separating from our experience. And the other thing that's really important is it doesn't mean to not separate when things are good, it means to always not separate from our experience. And when things are difficult, we're also practicing this non-separation too. You know, and all of us in this room you know, often get, especially because we read about yogis, we kind of have some idealizations about what happens in meditation that really need to crash in order to actually go deeper in our practice so that we don't cling to the pleasurable states, and that we can actually uh, practice in moments, and not being afraid of those moments. My favorite way of uh, thinking about this is from a Zen uh, master from the 13th century named Dogen. And the way he teaches this. is he says, uh, here leaps from here. Have you been here? <laughs> I'll say it again. Here, so this moment, leaps off of here. And then he asks, have you been here? Isn't that nice? Like as soon as you're in this moment, it leaps to Here. And then as soon as you're in this moment, it leaps to here. It's changing, in other words. It's fluid. It's not one thing. Um, And then he asks, have you been here? Because then you might go, oh, yeah. Yeah, I can do that over there. It's like, no, no, no. Actually, it's here. (laughs) From this perspective, the present moment's not leaping anywhere. Don't be afraid.
0: Can we go more into this? Or is it out of topic? This whole n-
1: n-
2: duality
1: It's off topic. Okay. Moving on. <laughs> Just because I want to get through a few more. Yes. Yeah. Can, can we keep going? Is that yes. okay? Yes. Uh, line 49. <clears throat> With effort relaxing, the flow of inhalation and exhalation can be brought to a standstill this is called pranayama. What? That, is that right? That's not what I learned pranayama was. I thought pranayama was manipulating our breathing. But now we're told it's something completely different, that the goal of pranayama practice is to leave your breath alone until you don't even know if it's inhaling or exhaling. Isn't that quite interesting? In other words, in order to leave something alone, first you have to manipulate it. Isn't this true with relationships? Like, you meet someone, and then you have to manipulate them for like five to 10 years? Is anyone in this process? You manipulate them as much as possible. Yeah. And then finally, it's like it comes to a crescendo. You're just about to get divorced. You're in couples therapy. And then um, the relationship starts, because you've let go. You've let go so much, you don't even need to be together anymore. And then um, some love is possible. And you might not even be together anymore. And the love can be even deeper, because you're not manipulating them anymore. And maybe our breath is like this, too. Maybe to get students to learn how to just let their breath be, because your body knows how to breathe, you just have to teach them for a few years to put their feet behind their head, balance on their arms, and manipulate their breathing until finally they can sit still and leave their breath alone. So leave your breath alone in meditation practice, don't manipulate it. And a great way to learn how to do this is at the end of asana practice, after you've manipulated your breath like crazy, lie down and leave it alone as if you were dying. Just leave your breath alone as if this was the last breath. And get to know what it feels like to put so much trust in life that it will breathe your uh, fragile body. Amazing. That's a really hard practice, by the way. I don't know if you felt that this morning. Just leave your breath alone. It's so much easier to daydream than to just feel your your body breathing. But then, right in the middle of trying to leave... So this is why I think it's a textbook, because he kind of, or she kind of gets what's going to happen if you try and do this. And then she says... As the movement patterns of each breath, in other words, as the inhalation and exhale start to get really soft or really shallow, are observed in terms of their duration, like how long the breath is, uh, the number, and the area of focus, your breath starts to become spacious and subtle. In other words, as your mind calms down, your breath calms down, and your breath gets really, really fine, really quiet. And then she says, "As realization dawns, I would translate this maybe a little bit different. Uh, I'd actually take out the word, the the term, as realization dawns. I would just say, the distinction between inhaling and exhaling falls away." And then there's clarity of mind. And all of you have probably had this experience if you have a regular practice. You're sitting, feeling your breathing, feeling your breathing, concentrated, calm, stable. And then there's just spaciousness. And you you forget if that was an inhale or an exhale. It's almost like, you were so close to the breath, really staying with the technique, and the technique opened up this new space that we just call space, where it's just really open. And the distinction between whether you're inhaling or exhaling just completely falls away, and there's just spaciousness. So that's, that's what she's saying here. And then... This isn't, it's not here, but I'll tell you what happens. Is then your ego comes in and goes, This is so spacious. This is, I'm so calm. And I, I'm a meditator and uh, spiritual too. I'm really spiritual. And now you have a really spiritual ego. Because what happened was, in its suspension, in its absence, the ego woke up and realized that if things keep going well in the spaciousness room, that it's going to be out of work. And the ego does not want to be out of work. right? So then the ego comes in, which is you. You come back and try and fill the space by referring it to yourself somehow. Right? And we do this with everything, you know? We do this with everything, you know? Always try to somehow take credit for good things, you know? Yeah. So, the way I think of the ego is it's the person that you've hired to be you. Okay? And... They'll do anything they can to keep their job and maintain their job. So you have to keep them on the payroll, so to speak, and keep them busy, but just keep them over here. right? Because you don't want to cut off their salary, because then they would be unemployed, and it would be hard on their family, and so on. So you want to keep your ego employed, but you want to make sure the ego doesn't move into spaciousness when spaciousness happens. See? So you want to keep an eye on the, the ego. And that brings us um, to line um, 52. <clears throat> which I would just translate um, then a brightness develops and i don't and the reason why i don't want to use the term uh, mind or luminosity is because the brightness doesn't develop in your mind there's there's just a brightness that one feels as shining inside their body probably the way i would describe that at a more street level would be there's an alertness and a vitality in your posture where your body doesn't go passive. There's a kind of uh, tranquility and energy at the same time. There's this balancing where there's a kind of tranquility, but it's energized. It's not passive. It's not sleepy. It's not vegan cardboard, as you said. (laughs) (laughs) And then we're told... Um, that um, it's possible in that state to be concentrated. Then we can be concentrated. Can we keep going? We're almost at the end. We just have a couple more. when consciousness interiorizes by uncoupling from external objects the senses do likewise and this is called I don't know everybody always translates this as withdrawal of the senses which to me is like doesn't make any sense really I remember I used to try and do this. Like I would take my nose and try and withdraw it. And it never worked. So if you were to translate this into English in a a literal sense, uh, pratyahara would actually literally mean counter-grabbing. Going against the tendency to grab. Pulling back from the tendency to grasp. Opposite diet. Yeah. Yeah. Opposite diet. So the way I think about this is when you start getting concentrated in meditation, and what I mean by concentrated is just relaxed, calm, tranquil, then the eyes, even if they're open, stop chasing after sense objects. Like color or anything. Sometimes they get a little bit blotchy and then they get really still. And then your eyes are open, you're aware you're in the room, but the eyes just don't need anything. The ears are aware of the field of sound. You're aware that there's sounds, you can hear sounds, but the ears stop following sounds. And they just receive sound. They receive the sound field without needing to do anything about it. And all the senses start to do this. The skin senses externally and internally. But nothing needs to be done. Right? So, so they, the, the senses uncouple <coughs> from sense objects. And the sixth sense is your mind. The mind is a sense organ, and the sense object of the mind is thinking and images. And the mind then uncouples from sense objects, meaning (coughs) the mind is noticing in the periphery that thoughts and images are moving. So this is really important. Thoughts and images don't stop. They're still moving by, but they're way in the periphery and the mind stops digging into them, or investing in them. And this is called pratyahara. Does that make make some
2: sense?
1: And now the last line, I think it's the last line. Um, then the body, which I, I don't like the term senses so much here, but then the body. Um, is in service of, um, I would, if, I, if, I, if I was translating this, I would say, uh, then the body is uh, spontaneous, responsive, creative. Do you know what I mean by that? Then spontan- spontaneity arises. Responsiveness arises, right? There's a kind of openness to experience. And then the chapter just stops here, which kind of leaves you hanging a bit. (laughs) You're like, what? Where's the part about when the menstrual cramps (laughs) stop? So um, are there any questions or comments before we switch? That's all we're going to cover today. We're going to do the rest tomorrow
2: this with, uh, many people say, like, yoga is so much more than a physical practice, mm-hmm. like
0: it's the philosophy, it's the mm-hmm. ethics, and I'm starting to think more and more that, how could ethics be something else than a physical practice, like, mm. how could philosophy mm. ever be anything that's not mm-hmm. physical, because then it's like, isn't that where, where it's at, Yeah. and ethics is all about mm-hmm. bodies. And because uh, they hurt, or they feel pleasure, and we gotta take care of each other. Yeah. Are you? Do you have anything to say around this? the stuff of separating? Yeah, the I mean two things. Yeah. And the, the, the other thing that we do, or yeah. is it actually is a physical practice. Uh,
1: I guess the first thing is when I read a text like the Yoga Sutra. I don't think it's philosophical. To me, it reads like a map. Like, try this, and here are some things that might happen. And if they do, then try this. That's kind of the sense that I get. I don't sense Patanjali ever talking about life after death, how the universe was created, like all the stuff we associate with philosophy. Um, to me, it's more like, try this, try that. If you go down this road. There's these seven things that might happen, and if three of them happen, then try these two things. Uh, do, do you see what I'm saying? It's like ancient self help, you know? So, so that's the first thing about philosophy. But the second, which is I think more important around ethics, is that I, I think that morality in a really personal in a really personal sense like how we live how we have values comes from mindfulness of the body and when we don't have the ability to tolerate aversion hostility arises when we don't know how to feel pleasure then <clears throat> clinging arises do you know When we don't know how to feel pleasure and also let it go, then we make poor ethical decisions. right? When you feel um, something that's really unpleasant and you don't know how to stay with mindfulness of the body, then you're going to make some bad choices. And I think all of us can reflect just on the last year and consider how most of the dumb things we did, we did when we lost track of our body and we separated from ourselves. And so one way to start thinking about ethics would be to start like really, really close and consider how not ethics as rules, but just the ethical choices we make in our community, in our family, in our relationships, I think really stem from our ability to be mindfulness of mindful of the body, to be in our bodies, to be in our experience, to not separate and I don't know about you, but like my goal in life is just to have really good friendship and to care about people and 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 to 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 live in a way where these ethical principles that I want to live by are actually coming to life in my community. And I think that partly comes from um, practice because we're learning how to tolerate the terrible feelings that come from being in relationship with people. (laughs) It's terrible to be in relationship with people. (laughs) Right? They just say the worst things at the worst times, and I mean, if you really want to be happy, just get away from people. <laughs> but if you want your life to be rich and meaningful and real and humane, then um, you need a practice that 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 helps you tolerate the unpleasant and moderate clinging to the pleasant. And without that, I think we're going to make a lot of stupid decisions, and say dumb things, and send unskillful emails, which is my main problem. <laughs> Un- unskillful emails, yeah. so I'm quitting email. Do you know about the new holiday in April, International Email Debt Forgiveness Day? (laughs) (laughs) Do you guys know about this? This is is a thing. I think it's just the first year now, where uh, it's this new holiday they're trying to put forward. I think it was started in Silicon Valley, and uh, where everything gets started nowadays. And um, it's uh, it's a day where all of your you go into your email. And all of your drafts that you have that you haven't sent yet and all of the emails that you still haven't responded to, you just erase them. Yeah. And everybody does it so that all the debts are forgiven and you just start fresh. (laughs) And you do this once a year. So if there's that one draft you've been sitting on for so long or one email you just haven't responded to, you just delete it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, and as soon as you delete it, your heart like gets. Because all those emails they weigh in your heart. There's actually an app you can get to measure the weight of unread emails in your heart. Yeah, do you do you have this app? Martin and I are working on this, this app. Yeah. So, uh, just a couple more minutes so any other comments or questions and then we're going to have a little break and switch gears I just yeah.
2: want to get back to Pratyahara
1: because
2: mm-hmm. yeah that was my first introduction with all the senses yeah. and, but lately I've been yeah, in my reading It's like they, which makes sense and maybe it's coinciding what you're saying is that to turn that watching inside
1: mm-hmm.
2: so that the, the, the things that you start to sense are your body Right. The sensations in your body. Yeah. But, and, then, and much more subtle because you have all this tactile sensation. Yeah. So it's like not shutting it off, but using it to feel contact, what you call yeah. 50%. You know? Yeah.
1: 50 50. Mm. Yeah. I think one other way, just to really simplify it, would be to say withdrawal of hunger. Like it, it's, it's the withdrawal of the grasping in the sense organs. And, it, and the, the key sense organs is really important because grasping is not just in your mind. The sense organs have samskaras; They have habits. And all the senses are trained to grasp. It's not just like in your mind, which I don't even know where that is. Do you know where it is, your mind? <laughs> yeah, even neuroscientists don't know where your mind is. Yeah. For a while they thought it was your brain. And now it's like nobody even knows Mm -hmm. where that starts and ends. It might not even be even inside your body, your brain. Could be all over the place. Well, anyways. Outside. Outside, yeah. Hormones, that's part of your brain. Those aren't all just in here. All kinds of chemicals. Relationships. That's part of your brain. So, oh, thank you for that. One more comment or question, and then we're going to have a uh, we're going to nurse. There was an artist in Toronto who recently did a piece where she set up a bar at the art gallery, and she uh, nursed into. Um, Little shot glasses, and you could go up and have a a shot. And this was her performance piece, and uh, it was shut down because apparently it's illegal to actually share your breast milk with uh, other people. Yes, against the law for health reasons. So, anyways, her her show was shut down, but uh, yeah, very popular at breaks during my yoga workshops <laughs> because the wheatgrass has become so expensive and this is more local is it vegan though? I don't know if it's vegan no. Probably not. I don't think so, yeah. so. it's expensive, it's expensive. yeah <laughs> I just want you to
2: share uh, the spaciousness I feel sometimes when I practice, mm-hmm. and then I try to describe later on. is I feel uh, life, mm. which life. means a sort of distinction between the external mm. environment and myself, really. Yeah. But then it's uh, or it's ego already present there mm. because it refers to me and my my boundaries yeah. between me and the yeah and the environment. Mm-hmm. But it's still spacious. Yeah, so maybe it's it's
1: not it's not there no that's exactly what we want to have happen so so when I'm listening to students especially on retreat describing what's happening in their meditative experience I'm always really especially as they get really calm I'm always trying to tune into whether the body is going passive or not because you want to experience the spaciousness with the ego right there And as soon as you're experiencing spaciousness and the ego's not right there, the body starts going passive. They start losing track of their body. And then you're starting to get into the realm of dissociation, which can be easily confused as calmness or concentration, but you've lost track of your body. So you want that room of spaciousness to have walls, and we could call the walls the kind of ego or skin, your, your skin bag. And you don't want to lose that so much. You don't want to lose your ego. You, you, you want, because you want the ego to be transformed by the experience. And if the ego's not there, it can't be transformed by the experience. Because you want the ego to become more porous and more flexible, but it can only become more flexible when it's around for the experience. That's why when you hear spiritual teachers talking about like going beyond the ego and this kind of stuff, it's like, whoa, you have no idea about uh, personality structure. And in communities where spiritual teachers teach getting over your ego, um, those are the communities where you have students who have psychosis on retreats, especially, because um, there isn't kind of an eval- a-, a value placed on the egoic body. We're getting a little bit beyond the chapter here, but it's an important point. Yeah, so that's why when spaciousness comes and the ego comes in, you just like see that also and you keep being with that experience. All together. All together, yeah. So, Filippo, will come back to your question. Can we have a short break? Do do we finish at 3? Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Can this break be five minutes and not any longer? Um, When we come back, we're not going to need any of our stuff. So you can uh, put your cushions and everything away. And we're just going to use the whole space. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to michael stone's podcast Awaken the world if you like this podcast you can support it by subscribing on itunes or soundcloud please take a moment to rate us and leave a comment your feedback helps to distinguish us from the pack you can also support us by word of mouth tell a friend or send a tweet finally please consider becoming a patron of this podcast through patreon at patreon.com forward slash michael stone Even a couple of dollars a month will help us reach our goals. To learn about Michael's retreats and his online courses, go to michaelstoneteaching.com. Once again, that's michaelstoneteaching.com. With your support, we'll continue to build a community library about mindfulness and mental health that can be shared with the world. Thank you for supporting this community without walls.